Good to see you this morning. Listen now to the Word of God. We are beginning a series this fall, starting today, with in the book of Hebrews. And the point of studying the Hebrews is to study Christ. The whole point of the book of Hebrews, from the very first verse to the very end, is all kinds of deep and wonderful treasures that come from the storehouse of the character of Christ. And that's what we're going to be looking at. Hopefully we'll see as many as we possibly can. Beginning there in chapter 1, verse 1, which is our scripture reading for the moment. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And then the next chapter over chapter 2, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Polymeros and polytropos. That sounds alliterative, doesn't it? That's exactly the way this book begins because it is a sermon. And the preacher begins with this alliteration. Actually, the very first word, just a single word, is the word we get paleo. It means old. Paleo diet is a diet of ancient nutritious foods made famous by the quarterback of the Patriots. He has a paleo diet. Old, old times, long ago. And then polymeros and polytropos. The next two words. The first one means many portions The second one means many ways. That's how God spoke to the patriarchs by the prophets. God spoke to the fathers by the prophets in many portions and many different ways. That's how they heard the word of the Lord. It came by oracle. Adam talked with God in the garden and walked and talked with him. Enoch walked with God and communicated with him. God spoke to Noah through oracle, through prophecy, through stern warning, and finally through a rainbow in the sky. God communicated to Abraham with a covenant, with the making of sacrifices, with the offering of the sacrifice of his own son. God spoke to Jacob in dreams, in prayers, in meditation in the field. God spoke to Jacob through a vision of a ziggurat, a ladder from heaven to earth. God spoke to Joseph in dreams, dreams of his own, dreams of other prison mates, and dreams of the Pharaoh. God continued to speak in the Old Testament to Moses 
on Mount Horeb through a burning bush, on Mount Sinai through God's own burning personality as a consuming fire and thunder and lightning, God made himself known to Moses. And the Bible says he spoke to Moses face to face. Down through the wilderness wanderings toward the end, God spoke through Balaam the prophet to the people using a donkey. I love the King James. Let me read it for you. The dumb ass speaking with a man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. The Lord used a dumb ass. And that probably wasn't the last time he spoke that way. And we go on and on. You just look at Samuel, how God, we just studied Samuel last year, how God spoke to him and revealed himself in many ways. David through the Psalms. Solomon with all the Proverbs that were inspired. Nathan the prophet with a parable. Gad the seer would come. Odo the prophet would have oracles from God. Elijah heard from God and spoke to the people in various ways over various times. Mount Carmel, the fire from heaven, through the widow, through the drought. Elisha with the woman, the Naaman the leper. Ahijah with Jeroboam's garment, which was rent to pieces. God even one time promised to use a lying spirit to speak to the people. you imagine that? God says, I'm going to put a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophet. Because God, their heart was so hard that God didn't want them to hear the truth. They weren't able to handle the truth. So he put a spirit of lying into the prophet. Just, this is what you want to hear? This is what I'll tell you. If your ears are itching to hear a false gospel, I'll let the preacher preach a false gospel. Oh, that's, that's incredible. Then you come even to the writing prophets, the one we think of as much more sophisticated, prophets like Isaiah. There were visions, there were line upon line, precept upon precept. There was inspiration of great hymody, the servant song. God would speak through his to peace people that way. Jeremiah, oh, did the Lord get a hold of Jeremiah? Jeremiah didn't really want to be in the ministry most of the time, but the Lord called him and put fire in his bones, and so he had to speak the word of God. He says, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. God used an almond tree, a seething pot, a pot and a potter to speak to Jeremiah. He used a basket of figs. He had confrontations with the, with the false prophets. He accused the false prophets the Lord did of preaching out of their own hearts instead of preaching out of the Word of God. God spoke to Jeremiah in the in the scroll room, isolated him there with Baruch and put him in that room where there wasn't nothing in there but the Word of God. Shut him up to God's Word. And so Jeremiah burned. One time he said, eat the scroll. <laughs> Ezekiel, the wheels, the chariot, the dry bones, on and on and on. Jonah, the great fish, Hosea, the wife of harlotry, Joel, a locust plague, with Amos, three transgressions and for four. On and on, God would use every literary device, every oracle imaginable, every way you could think of to speak to the fathers, the ancients, the ancestors, by these prophets. 
Zechariah, God spoke with two staves, beauty and bounds. He spoke about an open fountain. And Daniel, images, dreams, visions, prognostications, mystery. God spoke in many ways, in many manners, at various times, in bits and pieces to the ancestors. That's how he got his word across. With prediction, blessing, curse, prophecy, promise. That's the way God spoke. In the old days, now, but now, You see the word but in the scripture, it's going to show you a big contrast. But now, in the old days, God spoke that way. In these last days, these eschatological days, the days of the eschaton, the last days, God speaks still. But he speaks with a person, a word, a divine word, a divine logos. God speaks with one who is a son. The prophets were God's servants, God's spokesman. Jesus is God's son. To be sure, a spokesman. To be sure, the son, a servant. But a son is the word that God speaks to the people now. In the last days, in time past, he spoke to the ancestors. And now in these last days, he speaks by one who is a son, the word. We used to divide history that way. The former days were known as B.C., before Christ. The days since the coming of Christ were the years of our Lord, A.D. Now I notice more and more literature talks about something about a common era. What in the world does that mean? It seems to me that literature and language and communication is stepping backward. We're trying to communicate less and less more vague, less precision, more and more words that you're not allowed to use, more and more concepts that you're not allowed to think. When the Christian world divided everything B.C. and A.D., you had the biblical perspective. You had the biblical worldview on time. The biblical view of time is quite simple. There's a definite beginning, creation. It continues along a linear path. It reaches its climax in the coming of Christ. And then from then on, it is the years of our Lord. All things, the years, all time is in His hands. And then it has a definite consummation at His return and as the destruction of this planet and the judgment of this race and the inauguration 
of a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells a new humanity. And it was easy to see conceptually God's work in his progressive revelation in the process. The old days were days of promise. The last days are days of fulfillment. I have people ask me all through the years, Ron, do you think we're living in the last days? I say, yeah, we are. <laughs> so was Paul. So was Peter. So was John. So was Jesus. In the Bible, those are the last days. In these last days, the Old Testament talked about in that day, there will come a day in coming days. Behold, the days come. And those days came and are coming and will come at the advents of Christ, the first and the second advent of Christ. And so we understand God speaking into history, into time. We're talking about word, we're talking about time. Particularly, we're talking about chronos time. Time is measured with the turns and spins of the earth and the cycles of the planets, etc. All part of God's creation. And if we are to think God's thoughts after him, we have to view things the way God views them. We have to have a biblical perspective, a biblical worldview. And that's what you get here in this very first verse of this sermon out of Hebrews. But now God speaks, and as it were, he speaks a single word and that single word is Emmanuel, Jesus, Christ, the Lord, the Savior. And when he speaks that single word, it's his final word. It's his full word, filled with all that we need. Bible says that God has spoken unto us by his son. The prophecies of the old said, unto us a son is given. Psalm 2 said, thou art a son, this day have I begotten thee. And that will be the burden of the rest of chapter 1 and going into chapter 2 of Hebrews is to show that Jesus is a son and that sonship involves a certain status which is superior to other elements of the creation. That that son is unique and that that son is, before we get out of chapter 2, there will be a burden to show that that son is not only fully divine and superior to the angels and equal to God himself and very God himself, but that son is like his brothers. He's human. He has entered into the race, the fallen race, the human race for their salvation. And so that's where we'll be. The scriptures enlarge upon this with a sevenfold description of the Son, and they're found right here in these verses. And let me just count them off for you as we read them. He's spoken in these last days to us by a Son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things. We'll look at that in a moment. Through whom also he created the world too. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. A beautiful sevenfold description of Jesus. Words, short phrases which are laden with profound meaning. And then the balance of chapter one, which I don't know how the schedule is going to go because I don't make that schedule, but hopefully we'll be moving along rather uh, systematically through Hebrews. And if we are, the balance of the chapter will have a sevenfold description of Christ in his superiority to the heavenly host, especially the angels and his true Godhead. So this has a tremendous organization to it. It has a, an elaboration that most New Testament scriptures do not have. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews exactly, but very early it was included in the Pauline corpus of the letters that were circulated. It's no particular destination. It starts like a sermon. It ends like a letter. And we're not sure who wrote it. It's certainly thoroughly Pauline and thoroughly New Testament in its theology. But there are other theories as to who wrote it. I'll develop a little bit of that when we get to some of the scriptures, I think, that show that as to who might have written it and what the audience was people who were obviously of two unmistakable identities. They were Hebrews, children of Abraham, sons of the law. They were Jews through and through, but they were Christians. They were Jews who had believed in Christ, who had, who had answered the heavenly call, who had heard the gospel and believed it and partaken of its truth and were assembled and gathered and counted among the believers in Christ. They were in that very first generation, the Messianic Jews. And he has all the exhortations that he'll bring go to them in their current circumstances, which we'll learn a little bit more about that. But let me just point out a few things about those first two descriptions. The first one is a son whom he appointed heir of all things. And in this we turn to Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, we find a lot of good stuff down around verse 8. It says, as for me, this is the Lord speaking, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. This is the decree of God. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is quoted in Matthew and Acts. It's quoted here in Hebrews twice and in 2 Peter as well, this is the designation, the decree of the Father in, as it were, adopting the Son, making the Son be filled with the full status of sonship. It's a ceremonial and a legal thing. It's a regal thing as well. He's designated the heir of the throne. He is appointed heir of all things. 
You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This is the father's bestowal upon the son of heirship, giving him the inheritance. The inheritance is what is spelled out there in verse 8 of Psalm 2. And that is the inheritance is the people, it's humanity, it's the folks that God will give to the Son. They will be His, a new humanity, new creatures in Christ, a redeemed humanity. Everything that Adam lost is now going to be regained in the new Adam, Jesus Christ, and Christ is going to be the older brother, the head, the heir, the possessor, the giver of life to all these people. God says, I'm going to give you everything I have. That's what he says to the son. The son's the heir. He's the appointed heir, the singular heir. Of That's why it was such a temptation, you remember, when Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Remember what Satan said? He took Jesus up on a high mountain and Satan said this, Satan showed Jesus the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And what did Satan say? All this I will give to you if you worship me. Here's a shortcut. Here's an easy way to get the inheritance. Satan said, if you'll fall down and worship me, I'll give you all of this. Jesus, of course, in his humanity, clinging to that unalloyed faith in God, which believes the promises of God and the word of God, knew that only the Father could give that, and he had already bestowed it. In fact, many identify the fulfillment because of the gospel passage of that particular verse at the baptism of Jesus. When he was baptized, he was honored. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This day, baptism day, I have appointed you the heir of all things. I have declared you to be my son. The summary statement is by Paul in Colossians 1:15. All things were created through him and for him. The whole creation belongs to Christ. It's his and it will return to him. In fact, that brings us up then to our next little uh, description of Christ. Talking about the Son, he says, through whom also he created the worlds, by whom also he made the worlds. That's the ages, space and time. John 1 says, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1 again says, by him all things were created. Heaven, earth, things visible, things invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authority. This created, creating moment is very significant in Scripture, and for there we turn over to Psalm, I mean, sorry, to uh, uh, Proverbs, yeah, there it is, Proverbs chapter 8. This is the divine 
logos, the divine wisdom, reason, logic, the word, the revelation, the revelatory, creative, dynamic word of God. That's what's embodied in this word logos, the word wisdom. And here, down deep into chapter 8, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first from the beginning of the earth. See, the personification here of wisdom is now someone, it's some being. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with his fields or the first of the dust of the world. And by the way, that's interesting, it says the first of the dust of the world. It might be a, a reference to Adam, don't you think? The first of the dust of the world, because Adam was from the dust of the earth. He established the heavens. I was there when he drew a circle on the face of the deep. Isn't that a beautiful way of describing the, the circular motion of, of the design and the motion of planets? There is a circular, an elliptical uh, face upon them. When he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the limits, it's the sea, so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he established gravity, that's all, that's all established in that, it's just gravity. Gravity pulls the sea down and keeps it from getting on the dry land. The Lord separated the dry land, he formed gravity. You tell me what gravity is. Those of you with physicist, physicist education, describe it, define it. I would ask you to duplicate it, but I don't think you can. <laughs> That's God's notion. What's well, the tendency of two bodies, you know, to be attracted to each other in the heavenly? What is it? What makes it happen? How does the huge gravitational pull of one planet or one star, how's it affected? What is that force? We'll see a little later on that it's the powerful word of God upholding all things. But for here, we just can say it's that thing that pulls all the water down to sea level. He marked out the fountains of the deep, the foundations of the earth. Then I was beside him. Here's the son working with the father. And the, the position of the son is that of an apprentice. Jesus says, I do the works of my father. My father works and I work. And that's been true from all eternity. He was with the father. He was God as the father was. Then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Can you remember, imagine Christ in this ancient day with the Father, enjoying the creation, the creation and the work of their powerful word? This divine wisdom is Christ. He's the Son. He's the active agent in creation. When God said, let us make man, it was the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit conversing together. For they are three. And God spoke. That's all God did in creation was speak. 
And what did he utter? A word. And that word was the creative word, executed and made effectual by the Son. Christ is that creative power. He's that active agent in creation. He's that effectual worker, the master craftsman who gets things done. And we're out of time here, but I'll just point out one little word in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He talks about God's workmanship. And he talks about that being creation. But then there's another workmanship. And that workmanship, that masterpiece, that piece of craft is the redeemed human being. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And that follows immediately in context and in logic and in practice. The saving grace of God. For by grace are you saved through faith that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. The psalm I looked at just a moment ago makes a good place to give the gospel appeal. Psalm 2 that talks about, I will give you the nations as inheritance. He says in the last three verses of that psalm, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. This is the message that's given to the king. And a king given to the, a message given to the king is a message for the people. It's that which comes from an ambassador and it is to be heralded amongst the people. The king is going to make sure the word gets out. So he's preaching to the leaders of humanity. And he says, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. That's the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. Then finally, kiss the Son. Embrace the Son. Come to the Son. Fall in love with the Son. Be devoted to the Son. Kiss the Son. Love the Son with all your heart, with all your strength, soul. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. There's always a stern warning, and you'll see that warning in almost every major passage of Scripture as we go through the book of Hebrews. There's going to be the most sternest warnings given anywhere to apostasy, falling away, going back on Christ, trampling underfoot the blood, rejecting the Son, despising the cross. These are the things that get the Christian in the kind of trouble that the warning here is against. But it ends with a beatitude. I love this. This is the gospel call. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. That's the call to your heart today. We've only seen a few things about the Son. There's more to come. Then we'll learn all about His priestly work, how He bore your sins, and all the significance of that. We'll learn about the heavenly sanctuary and, and its comparison to the earthly sanctuary. We're going to learn internal truths. We're going to go beyond the first principles of Christianity in this book. We're going to go beyond the basics. He insists that we do, that we grow up in our maturity and our understanding of the profundity of the work of Christ 
as our priest and our Savior. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation given to us by so great a Savior? 